Happy 2018, y'all. Leah Pika here. Today's guest is a digital analytics veteran who's helping companies innovate through psychology-inspired persuasion. Stay tuned to find out who's telling it like it is on Present Beyond Measure, episode 31. Welcome to the Present Beyond Measure show, a podcast at the intersection of analytics, data visualization, and presentation awesomeness. You'll learn the best tips, tools, and techniques for creating analytics visualizations and presentations that inspire data-driven decisions and move you forward. If you're ready to get your insights understood and acted upon, you're in the right place. And now your host, Leah Pika. Hey guys, welcome to the new year and the 31st episode of Present Beyond Measure, the only podcast at the intersection of presentation, data visualization, and digital analytics and marketing. This is the place to be if you're ready to make maximum impact and create credibility through thoughtfully presented ideas and insights. 2018 is going to be huge. I feel it already. I see a growing appetite and learning how information is being disseminated inside and outside of organizations. I see data visualization platforms becoming more sophisticated and intuitive for users. And with that, I see a greater and greater need for empowering practitioners and their data audiences with the skill sets required to design and consume data to extract the maximum value from it and take action. So if your company has newly freshened training budgets for the year, there's no better way to invest than with a workshop with me. I will teach you and your practitioners the secrets to how ideas and insights get presented for impact and drive change in your organization. So to find out more about my training services, please hop on over to searchdiscovery.com contact. I also want to add something new to the show for the year that was inspired by my amazing friend and data viz guru, Cole Newsbomber Naflick of the blog and the awesome book, Storytelling with Data. Highly recommended. She is a huge inspiration to me, and she just gave birth to a brand new podcast called Storytelling with Data. And it's great. I love it. Right now, it's a solo show, but what I'm loving about it is how she's actually incorporating story into her format. She tells really fascinating stories from her rise to the top of the data viz food chain in her career and her family life, which actually exemplifies the power of storytelling. So I thought I would take a little inspiration there. And before I dive into the interview, I'll be sharing little stories that I think will pique your curiosity, plant a few seeds, provoke a few thoughts, or just maybe make you go, ah, just as a little experiment. So you can let me know what you think. So this weekend, I took my young son to see Paddington 2. Now, I don't take my son to the movies often. I am pretty discriminating for his age. But I can tell you this film was worth the matinee investment. It was a laugh riot, not only for him, but also for me. And it was an expertly told story with an immediate significant event, great character building, ingenious visuals, a villain you love to hate and a satisfying ending. And I know that parents listening completely understand the thrill of watching joy unfold through your child's eyes as their young imaginations are fired up by a great story. You know, it's a way that we ourselves become children again, right? So after the movie, I asked him some thoughtful questions to test his critical thinking. Yes, I am a mom nerd. (laughs) I asked him what his favorite part of the movie was. And I thought he was going to say Paddington washing windows with his rear end or falling into a flower pot. 
But instead, his favorite part was how Paddington worked with other people to save the day and became the hero. Oh, I was so touched that that's what he ultimately came away with. You know, the wisdom of children never ceases to amaze me. And a truly effective technique in storytelling is an unexpected ending. So that was a very poignant moment that moved me. I hope it moved you as well. And I hope these little vignettes will add some color to the show. Anyway, on to the interview. Hello, listeners. Today's guest is an industry-recognized entrepreneur, writer, and speaker, and a dear colleague, and is a rare mix of businessman and passionate geek. Before launching his newest business focused on teaching businesses how to become innovative, he's founded and helped lead several businesses, including Satellite, which was sold to Adobe Systems and has gone on to be one of the most adopted digital marketing technologies in the world. It's used on over 65,000 of the world's largest websites. In addition to inventing Satellite, he has also leveraged his early career experience in finance to pioneer many techniques in the digital analytics space, including techniques around marketing attribution, response analysis, assist and latency, and he currently has two patents pending on techniques for cross-platform data capture and real-time decisioning. Not too shabby. So with that, I'd like to introduce you to Evan LaPointe. Welcome. Thank you for having me. <laughs> it's my pleasure. So, Evan, we met uh, first several years ago, shortly before I gave a workshop to Search Discovery, and we instantly connected over what I thought was a common mission of helping people and businesses move forward. And I love to hear a good origin story. I'd love for you to tell us a bit how you fell into the world of measure. Good question. Um <laughs> A little, a little bit of a strange story that I found my way into digital marketing and digital analytics. I actually started my career in finance. Uh, and when it became pretty clear to me that every idea um, that you could have about something new to do in finance when it came to how to interpret the numbers or, or um, learn something had been invented 100 years before me, um, <laughs> it was, I knew it was time to get in a different industry. So... It was not uncommon for me to come in all excited uh, when I was doing uh, quantitative research on publicly traded companies to come in and talk to my boss. And he would say, that's a great idea. This guy named Adam figured that out about 200 years ago. And here's <laughs> the book that he wrote about it. So uh, I made the shift to uh, digital in 2005. And I joined a company called 360i and yes. worked in their analytics department for a couple of years and that was really that was in 2005 and 6 and that was when a lot of um a lot of things were kind of sprouting out of the ground i guess you could say i mean search had been around for a little while and it was certainly valid as a as a marketing channel but the concepts of um of how to link people who who conduct multiple searches together before they purchase which of course now we know is the basic beginning of attribution that was really new back then so mm -hmm. We did a lot of uh, interesting things. We studied uh, latency of uh, how long people took to purchase in different industries based on when they were doing their searches. And then I really fell in love with the concept of the uh, experience on site. And that was really the genesis of what led to creating Satellite, where it was a technology specifically designed to measure lots of small interactions. And mm. of course, the people in the analytics field 
are familiar with that concept. But in marketing, most campaigns are optimized on one metric, maybe two or three. Right. Uh, but it's, you know, revenue and revenue. And <laughs> if you're lucky, there may be some upper funnel things like the downloads of PDFs or other smaller actions like people registering for newsletters and mm -hmm. things like that. But uh, if marketers have have insight into all these little interactions, they get a concept of momentum and propensity. And that's ultimately what we can optimize against. It's hard to just optimize ROI. I mean, there's a, there's a ceiling to that. But when we get sure. down to which things are driving momentum in the correct directions, that's far more powerful and uh, a lot deeper. So that's kind of how I got um, to that point in time. And then from there to innovation was once Adobe bought Satellite, I spent a couple years in the product organization. Part of that time was spent thinking about the medium and long range roadmap um, for product broadly and how all these products uh, that, that Adobe offers come together into a cohesive story and offering and eventually into a cohesive um, bedrock of technology as they as the very talented people there continue to develop things and, and move forward. So mm -hmm. I learned a lot about what helps innovation move forward in businesses, um, innovation specifically in, in creating great products and, and going to market well, offering great customer experiences. And I also learned some things over the course of my career that prevent people from being innovative uh, or stifle mm -hmm. innovation. So my new business is helping people untangle that and, understand the concrete things they should do to become very innovative. Wow, that's an incredible story. Um, and, you know, as a very well-respected member of the analytics community um, with such a huge contribution, <laughs> um, you know, I can imagine the breadth of knowledge that you have around actually influencing decisions to push the innovation forward, right? Because you can ideate, but can you push that action through? I guess. And that's a lot of what I'd love to talk to you about today. So sure. um, I would love to know, you know, presenting these ideas, how did that come into play throughout your career? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the whole, that's the whole bag. I mean, if you're not, <laughs> if you're not working by yourself, which very few people are, I mean, I guess I'm doing that now. I'm sitting in my home slash office, starting a brand new company. <laughs> um, but if you're not working by yourself, then you're communicating with people and you're influencing how they're going to spend their time. And it really is mm -hmm. that simple. It's not influencing what decisions they make. It's, it's, I think you have to think about everybody's going to decide what to do with their time every day. And yes, you're either going to play a role in that, in that time or you're not. And when you present information, um, yeah, it, it's, it's not just a matter of saying, here's the information I have. Now you have it and I expect you to do the same things that I would do with that information because you don't have the same context as that person. So being being able to motivate change and, and get people's time and attention is um, is an art. And there are definitely um, I mean, you're offering something very valuable because there's a balance to strike. There's not a list of things to do in one presentation that will result mm -hmm. in action because in many cases, you can't ask for action in that first presentation. You're mm -hmm. just laying the groundwork for later communication. It may be necessary for you as an individual or for your team working in a, in a broader organization to create like a campaign of sorts that's a mm. multi-step, multi-stage conquest, <laughs> <laughs> particularly if you're trying to get 
uh, something done that that digs right down to the roots of the business's strategy and how it's going to spend a lot of its time and money. I love the idea of a staged presentation campaign um, <clears throat> because you're right. You have to really understand a lot of what drives the audience that you're trying to work with. And, you know, it's interesting. I was watching some of your videos on the YouTube channel you've created, which I'll link to in the show notes for this page. But one of them specifically talked about personality profile assessments as being really valuable to understand yourself better. But it occurred to me, like, what if we understood the personality profiles of the audiences we're trying to influence? Are they risk takers? Are they conservative? Would they like to hear the bottom line pitch right away, just cut to the chase? Or do they need something really gradual and staged, like you said, to help them make a decision and, and move forward? Um, so what are your thoughts on that in terms of understanding the audience for deciding how to go about creating influence. Yeah, it's a it's a tough topic and there's a lot of people um I'm even recording for that channel some kind of uh satirical content about <laughs> about people doing personality stuff in their companies and how mm -hmm. effective it is um because most people who have embarked on this personality exercise specifically about understanding others, not just understanding yourself, mm -hmm. have felt as though those programs failed. And mm, interesting. The, the I think the reason they feel that way is because when they first take that profile and they see each other's profiles, they get a lot of insight about each other. Mm -hmm. And then in the weeks and months afterwards, as they try to use some of that stuff, sometimes it works. Uh, but most of the time, people don't have the energy to spend on that every single day moving forward. They yeah. they they may be in a bad mood. They may be tired. Uh, but most realistically, if you're delivering a presentation to 35 people, those 35 people are all going to have different <laughs> ways of interpreting the information. And True. there's no such thing as the UN earpiece that you give to each of the 35 participants <laughs> so they hear their own unique translation. So being able to tell compelling stories um, needs to be a more general concept. I mean, you certainly want to tailor the message and certainly want to tailor the presentation as wisely as you can, mm -hmm. particularly if a few recipients are big decision makers and things sure. like that. You can position around that. But, you know, what I like about what you teach is that a lot of these concepts are more foundational to psychology than mm. individual sets of preferences within the, the tapestry of psychology. So right. it's very useful to get to know yourself. Um, I think the, one of the most useful things to get to know about yourself are your blind spots. So most personality assessments will tell you what you do well. You can infer from that and from reading other descriptions of other people what things you're not doing as well. And then you can intentionally pursue those people to give you feedback to complement the way that you've built your presentation mm. or, your, or you're building your argument. So if you're a, a terribly empathetic person, <laughs> you may go to some, a more pragmatic person uh, or a more kind of cold, hard facts kind of a person and, and, and show them the presentation and say, what am I missing here? And they'll give you a whole list of things that, that, that leads to them being unconvinced. And you can balance your style out with that style. So it's kind of mm -hmm. like a seesaw exercise. And that's probably the most valuable way of using those personalities. And then, of course, knowing the others is great. But I, I want to suggest to people that you be realistic about that and not um, 
not try every day to adapt every conversation and, and every communication around the other person because I just mm. don't think that that's I don't think that that's productive. I think what's what's more productive is to build trust so that that person's perspective, uh, when matched with yours, makes the idea itself better, as opposed to just going around thinking it's up to you to convince other people that the exact idea you have right now is the right one and they should adopt it too. Because chances are their their personalities more useful to you in the in the process of improving the idea than it is in the process of adopting the idea. Mm, okay. No, I, I like that. You know, I it's interesting. One of the questions I get frequently during my workshops is but my stakeholders are so different from each other. One likes this and one prefers that and and this and that. And how I try to respond diplomatically is saying they may they may have been trained or trained themselves to want this or that, but for the most part, the brain absorbs and encodes information in a similar fashion. People people may have preferences, but they may not realize that there is a more conducive way to them consuming this information. Um, but what I've been what I've been actually researching recently a lot about is the psychology behind something called the six human needs framework. Um, it's by Tony Robbins. And what I've been trying to use it for is allowing having the same approach to presenting the information, but trying to use a needs perspective to interpret what's coming back, what's what are the responses coming back from specific audience members? Because those needs are going to be different. Um, so anyway, I didn't know if you had thoughts on kind of understanding what the needs are behind the people that you're speaking to and how you can adapt what you're presenting. Yeah. Um, I mean, one of the one of the really productive things to do when you're trying to pitch an idea and just because you're not in sales doesn't mean you're not pitching <laughs> yes is to offer clear choices and if you're if you're trying to be if you're trying to be motivational uh, one of the ways you can work around the fact that there are lots of different personalities interpreting the information differently is to finish with offering two very clear choices for what to do next and make one of them a really horrible choice and one of them a really logical, great choice. And then mm. work backwards in your presentation. Um, you know, maybe you've worked forwards to this point to get to this point, but then go backwards and make sure that the stuff that you're doing earlier gets you to this point. And then you'll, you may be faced with some questions about option three or four by the people who interpret things differently, but that's still useful to you. I mean, if people are are saying, well, there's also a third option, which is X, then hopefully that's productive conversation. I mean, if it's, if it's, if somebody is saying the third option is to do nothing or, or postpone the decision, then that's not always productive, but let's assume that they're telling you something productive. Mm -hmm. You, you do have their attention. They're giving you their time. You're moving things forward. And, um, that's a good sign. But if you don't give people choices and you just kind of say, here is the information, make your own conclusion, and I hope it's the same <laughs> as mine, then you are leaving too much up to chance. If you instead offer one option, then not only do people psychologically disagree with the opinion, but you may find that they psychologically disagree with you as a person from that wow. moment forward. And because if, you know, if your conclusions on information are radically different than theirs, they may begin or finish in one swoop the process of 
putting you in a box in their mm-hmm. mind for somebody who does or does not have valid ideas that should be listened to in the future. So giving two choices um, is always better than giving no choices or one choice. That is so interesting. So, you know, I always recommend to my students to not just present an insight or observation and then walk away, but always follow with some sort of recommendation. In that context, do you feel that only offering one recommendation for that insight is going to possibly turn off the audience or should they come up with two options that they could go for for each case, I guess? I I mean, I would generically recommend always having two options. Oh, that's amazing. and the and the second option can be a horrible option, right? I mean, you could say like, okay, option one <laughs> is for us to eat the pizza, and option two <laughs> is for us to turn the table over and start screaming and make a big scene. And definitely number two. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so you can illustrate the point, and of course, that's a ridiculous example. But I think most people, if they force themselves to come up with alternative two, you know, mm. of option two. It won't be that hard to do it based on the last recommendation they made. They will say, oh, well, I guess our, our other logical option would be this. Now, when you when you propose that option, and, and don't make it so ridiculously awful that you're you're clearly stacking the deck, but make it a viable option. Yeah. But you're showing people uh, that you're thinking through the problem from multiple perspectives because mm-hmm. rarely is there only one interpretation of information, one right answer. Sure. Um, you know, certainly you see this with extremely intellectual people. They almost they almost have a hard time forming a, a strong opinion one way or another because they see the truth in so many different interpretations. So yes. if you see that that's the case, then you can work yourself back down to saying, OK, I'll recognize several perspectives. And when you present the options, if it needs to be two or three or, you know, maybe more than three uh, for many of the people who would have picked a fight with you that your proposal wasn't right, your option two was their idea. And if putting that also mm. on the screen with an, with an argument as to why that's not the right idea, that that's productive because now they're like, oh, they're, they're ahead of me. They're, mm. They are thinking about this too and they thought about it longer versus them saying, well, this person didn't even think about this alternative. So it's, it, it can be really helpful for that. This is so fascinating because I'm always thinking of ways to empower the audience just from an engagement perspective. And I can totally see how giving more than one option, giving a menu of options that are well considered, well thought out and well vetted is completely empowering to the audience rather than just suggesting one thing and (laughs) having a yay or a nay. Um, Wow. That is so valuable. So I'm sure that you have witnessed many presentations throughout your career, both in boardrooms to conferences. I would love to know what is maybe something you find in common for the most successful presentations at influencing or or achieving their objective with the audience? That's a really good one. Um, (laughs) It can, it's, it's very contextual. So let's take a few different examples. Um, at a conference, I think credibility is such a big deal. So I would, you know, there's a a book that most people who listen to this have probably read called Made to Stick. Mm -hmm. And they build an acronym in the book for how to build a story 
based on it's simple and unexpected and concrete and credible and all these these types of things. And mm-hmm. the um, the acronym is success and they just don't use the last S and it's really awkward and kind of funny in the book. But <laughs> the um, the concepts there are really are really important to follow, I think, in a in a conference setting because novelty is so important in a conference setting because conferences are so incredibly boring sometimes. What? And no. Yeah. So so if you can stand out as a presenter, I mean, presumably one of the best outcomes you can have as a presenter in a conference is for people to come up and find you afterwards. Mm. Um, I think that is good call. You should always set some sort of a goal for those types of presentations to large groups. And a good goal is usually just that it was interesting enough where somebody wants to come up and talk to you and and ask a, another question. And maybe to that end in your presentation, tease that up a little bit and say, hey, you know, I, I, I can't cover this idea in detail right now, but know that there is a lot more detail. Come find me afterwards and let's have a conversation about what this means for you. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have a, a point like that to make, or you just don't want the attention, <laughs> um, it's harder. It's harder to, uh, to make a compelling presentation in that setting if you don't want to talk mm. to anybody afterwards. The, um, yeah, <laughs> you know, there's, there's other, there are other contexts. Like if you, um, are just delivering something, you know, results to, uh, an executive team or something like that. Um, you know, I think it's, it's very different. It's, uh, it's tell them what they want to hear <laughs> for one thing. I can't tell you how many presentations it takes so long for people to drive to the point where oh, everybody in the room's expectations have been fulfilled. Um, and you know, picture yourself, I used to do this in some meetings and it, um, it, you know, sometimes it goes well and sometimes it doesn't, but you can still put yourself in the situation and picture yourself telling everybody in the room to close their laptops and put their phones in the middle of the table before we begin. Mm-hmm. What can you do to make that worth doing for them <laughs> in, the, <laughs> in the presentation? Cause if somebody, mm. if somebody can be multitasking, um, while you're presenting and, and doing so successfully, then they really shouldn't be there, at least for that piece of it. Oof. And to your point about involving the audience, maybe those are the critical times where you need those people doing the talking instead of you. So it, <laughs> it is very, it's very contextual uh, as far as what makes su- successful presentations. You'll probably ask me the question about the opposite if um, I don't want to ruin that one for you. Man. but. I, <laughs> that's that's probably a more yeah it's probably a a more interesting set of answers of course i always want to start with the positive (laughs) yeah but to the point of what i was saying first if you'd like more information about this please reach out to me on twitter i'm at evan lapointe (laughs) there it is there it is this is this is all so fascinating you know um my most recent guest will reynolds from seer interactive had a really said something really good. He said, you want to leave the presentation being the first thing on that person's to-do list the next day. And um, he actually has been creating a number of really interesting KPIs for measuring effectiveness at industry events. If you're a speaker, you know, I looked at my scores and if enough people said, yeah, good. I was like, okay, job well done. But, you know, he got really ninja with it. Um, 
But this is really interesting. The number of people coming up to talk to you afterwards, um, that is something I'm definitely going to be paying more attention to. Um, so thank you for that. Sure. So you called it. My next question was <laughs> the flip side. So what would you say are the biggest pet peeves that you have about presentations that are really holding people back? Well-meaning people. Um, yeah, I mean, I'll start with the easy one, which is <laughs> the ugliness of most presentations. And I recognize that most people don't have a, a graphic design degree, and that's okay. Mm -hmm. But if you're going to make an ugly presentation, you almost want to make it intentionally ugly. <laughs> um, you know, you don't want something to be accidentally ugly. And no. I think, I, I don't know if you do this for the for the viewers or not, but I mean, if you could suggest some minimalist designs that people could use um, that are templates that, mm -hmm. that would just be nice to kind of remove some of the, I mean, one of the nice things about minimalism in, in presentation design is the subjectivity of what you think is aesthetically pleasing is kind of reduced because the elements themselves are reduced. Mm. You know, you, you don't, you don't need a, a flower in your email signature. It's, it's <laughs> a, it's a subjective element. That, remove that, flower from. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's just, there are certain things where, um, no decision is better than a decision. And I think with design elements that don't add to the material itself, there certainly are, are people who are capable of beautifying presentations uh, with those elements. But a lot of people um, make really, really hideous presentations and they just, it, it just sets the tone. And I, yeah. I, I hate to make it about that, but I mean, you got to recognize that you will be judged on these kinds of things. And yeah. if you don't think that that's right to be judged, then it won't change the fact that you will be. So, <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. So that's probably number one. It's just when yeah. people just, just make really unappealing yeah. um, designs. And then, of course, that ripples through to the meaning of charts and things like that, where mm -hmm. you see, you know, these old, um, like the default charting palette in Excel was like, it's beautiful. I, I mean, it was like plum and <laughs> pale mustard and burgundy Christmas sweater. And, and you're like, where did these colors even come Christmas from? Like, sweater. <laughs> well, I mean, that's, I, I'm just trying to picture the chart in, yeah. in my mind and the these Crayola different names. colors. Yeah. I mean, they're just, they're just absurdly awful looking charts. So, yeah. uh, and, and when you have that many colors in a chart as you teach, you actually lose meaning to the to the data itself. So it's not just a matter of, of prettiness. It, it's a matter of practicality too. So other than aesthetics, um, yeah, I just, um, a lack of a story is, is a big one. Mm -hmm. um, and then I would say, for me as an analyst, I just, I, I despise averages. I despise like one metric meant to represent <laughs> all people. And a lot of it's like this nonsense that you hear. And I, I, I do not intend for this to be political in any way, left or right. I, this is just an example that's in the pop culture. This, this conversation that's happened in the last couple months about the average household will get XYZ dollars with this tax plan. Yes. Well, that, Good point. that, that represents 
92 out of 200 million households, right? Not 92 million, 92 <laughs> households out of 200 million are in the very narrow band of the histogram that represents what quote unquote is the average, the average. home. So 99.99999% of people <laughs> will not resemble the statement that we're intended to believe is the statement for almost all people. And mm -hmm. that is the way we present data all the time in organizations. We say the average customer spends this much time on the website. The average customer buys this many things per purchase. The average customer this. Yeah, there is no such thing as an average customer. Right. Mm, and I love that. If, if you are not dividing your, your findings up into segments, you know, you could say um, for, a, for a company who sells lots of products to the same customer and, and you're looking at attrition. Mm -hmm. If you say, here's our attrition rate, it's 13%. Well, you could say, well, the attrition rate is 13% overall. But for people who have more than three solutions, that rate is 2%. And for people who have one, it's 80%. And now your findings are like radically different. Yeah. And and that's just, you know, an off-the-shelf example for, you know, almost any company, any enterprise company. So that drives me freaking nuts because <laughs> average average findings, average conclusions are not conclusions at all. They're completely meaningless facts. Mm. And that is where the downward spiral begins when people are trying to decide what to spend their time on because the finding isn't concrete. It's not actionable. Um, it, it just doesn't, it just doesn't work that way. That's not, that's not how we function in the real world. And I think that yeah. that needs to match up better. I, wow, this was so good. Um, so working backwards, you know, I can hear the listeners saying, but my bosses want to know averages. The first thing they want to hear is how many sessions and That's average great. bounce yeah. rate. And is it okay to kind of just preface with that, but quickly move on and really dive into some of the, the deeper things? Yeah, you absolutely should. If they want that, the first thing you do is you give them what they want. And <laughs> And then the second thing you do is you show them, don't, don't tell them, but show them why they should never, ever want that again. Mm. And, and, and let them arrive at that conclusion themselves, but make sure you, you make it clear enough, right? So if you yeah. say, what's the average time on site? And, and, you know, hopefully people aren't talking too much about that anymore, but let's just say, <laughs> for the sake of argument, they are. I'm gonna what's the average click-through rate? What's the average time on site, right? So. What's the average time on site? Well, you say, okay, the average time on site is two minutes and 38 seconds. And when you break it down Profit. this way, then here's the, here's the visualization of how variable mm. that is. Or on the, or on the chart, um, you know, show a normal distribution and then show the average, or if it is a normal distribution, you know, but show the mm -hmm. distribution in the data and then put a dot on the distribution for what the average is and then say, you know, less than X percent of sessions truly fit into this category of average. Oh, and then wow. 40% of them are far above average and, you know, 55% of them are far below average. And what that means is we need to dissect this a little bit deeper. Would you be open to me showing this to you sliced up in the future? And then what it will allow me to tell you is, how to act on that for these specific groups of people as opposed to you know, trying to boil this ocean that doesn't really represent the truth. Okay. I love this. 
because I definitely have struggled in the past with getting people away from averages and aggregates. But I absolutely love the idea of showing a distribution and then saying, by the way, this is how many this is how few actually uh, are in that bucket. So let's look at, you know, something deeper. So that, that I think that's an incredibly easy and approachable way to give them what they want, like you said, but then ease them into something where they might never want that again. I really love that. Um, and then I'd love to go back to your first peeve, actually, because I think the listeners might benefit because, as you said, we are suffering an epidemic of ugly <laughs> in the conference room. And um, one of the things I always suggest is going to graphicriver.net. Um, they have a lot of really well-designed uh, templates and you can remove things from them, but at least they have a cohesiveness to the objects that they've created and info, um, not infographics, iconography and um, charting and things like that. But you're absolutely right. Minimalism, I think, is the biggest, one of the biggest things people struggle with because one of my students once said to me, but my boss thinks I work harder the more stuff is on my slide. And I thought, oh my goodness, is that is that really a thing? Like the more items there are, the harder you worked. When I would think that it's actually more challenging to create a simple slide that's truly effective. Um, yeah, that that happens. Um, I think I, I mean in that in that person's specific case, I would say what you should do is make two slides for every slide and make one simple, conclusive, elegant slide. And then immediately after each of those say, here's what went into that. Mm, and then allow okay. that person's my allow, allow appreciation to form. Because mm -hmm. what they're what they're really saying is that my boss doesn't appreciate how much work goes into something simple. So show them how much work goes into something simple, but still give them the simple thing, right? Say, yeah, this is this is what the this is what the situation looks like in our marketing campaigns, and here's the recommendation, here's the highlighted information, and then next slide, just drop the kitchen sink on that thing, and, <laughs> and say, here's all the backing data. So you know, if you want to go through all these things, the models that I ran, if we're doing any sort of machine learning or anything like that, what the algorithms are telling us, I mean, just blow their minds and almost almost make them disgusted uh, with the detail to the point where they have no desire to do anything but leave that in your very capable hands. Mm -hmm. And because because once you build that trust, you know, once you build that faith in them that a lot a lot went into this, um, you know, they'll they'll start they'll start walking you around with their arm around you saying, oh, this is the guy who who turns all the mess into simple stuff that I can understand. And that's mm. That's the right kind of brand for an analyst. Um, yes. But that that brand doesn't occur without the trust, right? Like showing your work, um, it may temporarily interrupt the flow of the presentation, but it may prove very valuable uh, in the end to say, hey, this is the reality of what it takes to produce what I just showed you. Mm -hmm. And I'm happy to, to hide this in the future, but I just want to make sure everybody knows that I don't take this lightly, you know, that I'm, I'm putting... I'm putting the energy into this question that the that the question deserves, and here's what that energy looks like. Mm. Okay, so maybe for a complicated analysis, the very first time, just showing briefly, kind of a schematic of how you went about it. Um, I always caution that 
it's hard to tell how much the stakeholder actually wants to know how hard something was for you. Um, but I can see how you can position it in a way where you're showing the level of thought and detail that you put into it, not in a bid for getting recognized, but just in a bid for appreciation for that so they can have better context. Yeah, I think that's I think that's right. And I think, you know, if you are going to talk about a big, hairy, spaghetti monster of a problem, <laughs> um, one of the things that I think is really important to show, but to show very beautifully, are the inputs to your model. Um, okay. That's part where you probably wouldn't want to obscure that in the mess of the the proof that you put the level of energy into the into the question that it deserved. Um Giving people a clear view of the inputs you used in your model, whether it's a mental model or a, or a you know more physical model of math, um, can be really really helpful in the conversation because you can say, you know, in this analysis, I considered the following from our customer base, the following from industry data, the following from these data sources available here, here, and here. Um, you know, I considered seasonality in this way. If you deal with currency, you know, I. I considered exchange rates in this way, yada, yada, yada. Mm -hmm. um, you know, whatever you can say went into the model um, can help build that credibility. And I think that's one part to pull out and make clear. Now, how you sequence it is up to the, you know, the presentation and the audience, whether you do that before the finding or after the finding. Um, but I, I think that can be one part that is, that's, that's very helpful and productive. It is so helpful, really. I mean, that I am I'm working ever more trying to teach people how to ease their audience in, like really give them a runway into the analysis that they've provided. And, you know, this is really useful for that whole setup, you know, of helping people understand what they took into account. So extremely valuable. So um, were there any resources that you encountered along your path? I, I know you talked about Made to Stick. Any other resources along your path that really helped you fine tune and hone your skills in terms of influence and communication? Oh, sure. There, I mean, there are so many books. There's YouTube talks, TED talks. I mean, there's so much stuff out there. Um, a lot of them drive towards similar conclusions, which, which when you end up with that set of conclusions, it's kind of like your pre-flight checklist for a presentation. You know, did I... Did I get past the amygdala, which is the part of the brain that assesses whether anything you're saying is worth listening to? <laughs> <laughs> and right. and you know, essentially, that's like the innermost part where you're 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 thinking in the now and you're trying to prioritize what's novel or what's threatening and trying to essentially filter noise out of your life. And you want to get past that. That's that's part of your pre-flight checklist for sure for every for every presentation. Um, of course, you'll learn a lot as you research these things about um, change and why people are resistant to it. And the more mm -hmm. you can ad directly address those points of resistance, uh, the better off you'll be. You'll learn certainly about the personality preferences around making decisions that are oriented toward empirical data mm. uh, versus inferred meaning, yeah. uh, which are the two forms of thinking. And you'll have... Uh, on the feeling side, solutions that are oriented toward um, empathy toward others and understanding about other people and groups 
versus feeling about personal values and a match of personal values. And, you know, certainly in our day to day, you'll find varieties of those four. You'll find people who will not make a decision unless there's empirical evidence. Right. You'll find people who will see that empirical evidence and say, yeah, but does it still make sense? Right. Because a lot of people did what what happened here. And just because they did it doesn't mean that it was the right decision because a lot of them regret doing it. Right. Um, you'll find people who will say, well, you know, this feels like the right decision, but it's just wrong for the group. It's going to hurt these people in this way and we're not going to do it. Mm -hmm. And you'll certainly find people who will say this just doesn't match up to my personal value system. I can't be a part of it. So that should be another part of your pre-flight checklist and a, a, a generic resource to understand that um, is just research on Carl Jung, who is the mm -hmm. psychologist who came up with these functions to begin with. And they've they've served a great purpose. Uh, I don't think there's a lot of usefulness in debating whether they're true or false. Mm -hmm. um, I think they're archetypical and I think that makes them truer than they are false. And, um, and I think that um, if you want to research that, I mean, you can just look up uh, the functions that he put out there and then you can certainly research Myers-Briggs, which is kind of like a, a mm -hmm. construct that you can it's like Legos with personality. You can build these things together into one personality. So mm, that okay. stuff is really valuable. Um, and then, you know, the, the third thing is kind of a self-exercise that I would really recommend anybody do. So one of the things, if you are studying music in mm -hmm. school, that they will, that, that, um, that professors will have you do is they will have you listen critically to music. So, it's great to put Taylor Swift on the radio <laughs> and dance and, and enjoy it. It's a different thing altogether to listen to the song and hear an opening section and write the letter A on a piece of paper and the time or the number of bars that were played. And mm. then listen to the next and write a B. And then listen to the whole song and figure out, does A come back? And when does it come back? And what mm. does B come back? And is there a C and a D? And look at the music, look at the physical structure of the music and how it's built. The very same thing can be done with storytelling and presenting. And if you find great presentations, you know, what are they talking about in the first five minutes? Are they mm -hmm. setting the scene? Are they telling us where it's going to end? And then we're starting over, start starting the story over, which certainly we see in movies where the right. we see the very end of the movie first and <laughs> yes. then the whole rest of the movie is getting us back to that point. Dunkirk, uh, I think, was built on that mm. on that framework. So uh, and what was cool about Dunkirk is, you know, you can't do this in your presentations, but it had <laughs> four separate, you know, timelines that all ended in the same point. It was very, very interesting. So, uh, but look critically at other presentations and even at, um, you know, speeches, like commencement speeches that you can find online, uh, look at TED Talks, look at things like that and do that same exercise like you do with a piece of music and critically analyze what you feel the masters are doing in terms of how they pace out their story and how they build it together. When does it first click? When does it first come together? When do they first say, we're going to do this. And have they backed that up before they said it or they start the process of backing that up after they say it? And you'll find different styles, but you'll find one that works well for you. And I think that's probably the that's probably the place where people start to become more intentional rather than just academic. Mm -hmm. Wow. So useful. <laughs> I love uh, relating that to movies, especially because I always think to myself, you know, like people will 
put a whole list of insights and bullet points on one slide at the very beginning and all the information up front. And, you know, I'll ask, like, do you think people would watch Game of Thrones if they put the entire synopsis, <laughs> printed that out, gave that to everybody before the show aired? Um, you know, really look at how that information is dripped out. So this is extremely useful. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, I mean, it's, it's mostly stuff I've learned by not doing it. <laughs> and, <laughs> right. And uh, eventually realizing it's really helpful. And I mean, particularly that last exercise, I would imagine some people are listening going, I do not have time for that. <laughs> um, and, you, and, and maybe that's true. Um, but I still think you should try to try to do it because once you've done that, you know, you do that three or four or five times. Um, it starts to pay very big dividends. You start forming some yeah. more concrete opinions and you become a much more efficient analytical watcher or listener once you've started doing it a few times. It, mm -hmm. it doesn't necessarily come naturally because all we want to do when Taylor Swift comes on is dance in our pajamas. I know. <laughs> exactly. So, Evan, I call the next segment the upgrade, which is a power tip for doing our jobs of presenting data more effectively better. So do you have a tip to share with us before we wrap up? Oh, I, I mean, I, I'm not really good at the, at the little tip stuff, but I guess let me bring it back to something that I said earlier, which is that, that buddy system. Hmm. Um, do a personality profile, go to 16 personalities or, uh, that's a good one for Myers-Briggs. There's a, um, <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's another one that's based on the more kind of modern, scientific psychological community uh, around the big five. Mm -hmm. um, I forget what it's, it's called know yourself or something like that. Mm -hmm. I, I can, I can give you the info and you can stick the link in yep. something later on. Um, but read that and figure out what your strengths are. Become really good at explaining why your individual strengths are a good match for the story you're telling. And conversely, find out what your weaknesses are and use the buddy system to go find a person, show them what you're going to show somebody else and figure out where the just the, the gaping holes are in your story and they'll wow. tell you. Wow, that's that is great. So we have our last question. So think very hard here. Imagine this very plausible scenario. You are about to sink a hole-in-one at the Coral Canyon Golf Course when suddenly you trip and fall into a rip in time, which pulls you back to the moment you're about to walk into your first presentation. This could happen. So what would today you say to yesterday you? Uh, I mean, I don't know if the advice I'd give to myself is as useful to other people as it would be for <laughs> me. Um, Try us. <laughs> make sure they like you. Okay. I would say that if if you you can go in there and be right, you can obviously also be wrong. Um, but you can go in there and have the right things to say and emerge with no fans. And if you do that, certainly more than once, nothing will happen. Nothing good will happen. And I certainly have prepared presentations that I felt could bring down the Berlin Wall with their <laughs> validity mm -hmm. and um, and then struggled because I was just not likable. And I think, no. I, I know, you know, it's, if you don't, if you think that's hard to believe, you don't know me well enough. But, <laughs> but the, but I, I analysts 
analysts can trend so much toward the facts that we find and the information mm. that we find um, and forget that we are in an organization uh, that functions on human beings and it yeah. functions on relationships. And it'll be a slower start sometimes. But yeah. once you have those relationships, uh, there's very little you can't do. And that just multiplies over your career. Oh, it is so valuable. We're not going in there talking to robots. You know, it is so much about the humanness behind our audiences and their individual personalities. Um, so that is very valuable. Thank you. So unfortunately, our time has run out, but I would love for you to tell the listeners where they can keep up with you and anything you'd like them to check out. Uh, sure. So I have just started um, a new business that's teaching companies how to become more innovative. And uh, what that means is that they don't struggle to make decisions um, when, when there's a short-term option versus a much better long-term option. Mm. And that, that, that is kind of central to a, a lot of things. I think what you're teaching people is so key because you have to build the case very often to not just kind of put the fire out, but leave the embers kind of underneath still mm. going versus truly putting the fire out for good to where it can't light itself again. Mm. Um, you have to build that case very often. So what you do is very valuable in that context. In, in the spirit of spreading that message out and helping far more people than I would be just in the consulting engagements that I'm doing, I've started a YouTube channel that you referenced earlier. And um, in there is deep discussion about what the meaning of innovation is, why it is such a valuable singular concept to focus on because it creates value in so many different areas of the business. Mm -hmm. Um, how to tactically do that. So how to get out of the conversation of let's be more innovative as, you know, a word we stick on the hallway in the company, but, you know, something we actually do. And it dives deep into the psychological uh, basis for innovative thinking. It, it talks about what good ideas actually are <laughs> um, and what, what helps good ideas happen. Uh, mentally, some tools you can use to make your ideas better. And if the, in the case that your ideas are actually so good, that they're hard for people to recognize tools to distill complex ideas down to simple beginnings so that you can start telling the story and, and getting people closer to the complexity as they get more comfortable. So definitely check that out if, if you have an interest um, in educating yourself or your team. And um, it's interactive, so ask questions and you know I'll get back to you if you have questions about the content. So that's rolling out right now. Um, and I think that's probably the most most actionable thing people can do uh, if they're interested in learning more about that. Okay, great. Well, that sounds really exciting. And I'll definitely have those links at the show notes page, which will be leahpeka.com slash 031. Very excited to see what you come up with. And I just want to thank you so much for giving your time today. And you've really made such a huge contribution to this field. Uh, but the information you dropped here was incredibly valuable. And I just want to thank you to, for that. Well, and thanks for what you're doing. It's, um, it's, it's high time that analysts, uh, you know, had the resources that they need to improve in places where it's going to matter most to them and, and the ability to present cogent thinking, uh, couldn't be more important right now with all the mayhem in business. <laughs> well, thank you kindly. <laughs> 
Evan is fantastic, period. (laughs) I love bringing on experts who were once in the trenches themselves, learning the craft of effective persuasion, right hands on. And there are so many ideas I'm taking away from this for both my students and myself. I definitely recommend checking out his growing YouTube channel. So to catch all of the links and resources mentioned in this episode, visit the show notes page at leahpika.com slash 031. I would love if you could leave me and Evan a comment or a question because I want to hear about the challenges you face when presenting information, doing data visualization awesomely, or anything else you'd like me to talk about. If you like what you've heard, please hop on over to iTunes to subscribe, leave a rating and review. Ratings and reviews are so appreciated because they affect the rankings of the show. And I'll be reading out my favorite ones on future episodes. And today's presentation inspiration is from Chip Heath, the author of Made to Stick, which Evan mentioned today. I thought this one quote was particularly spot on for presenting ideas, and it is, to make our communications more effective, we need to shift our thinking from what information do I need to convey to what questions do I want my audience to ask? Mm, I love spinning around the presentation objective to engaging them in a dialogue. The perfect piece of wisdom to close out today's show. So that's it for today. I'm wishing you an amazing start to your best year ever. And I can't wait for you to be a part of my best year ever too. Till next time. Namaste. And that's a wrap. Well, I changed. Oh, okay. Cool. All right. I guess if I have to come up with something, I, I, you know. Many, (laughs) many goods. Many happies. (laughs) Many happies.